Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, October the 30th. This week, the world food crisis. I'll be discussing the lead editorial with my colleague, Dr. Rowan MacDonald. Just before that, some other signposts to key content in the issue of The Lancet dated October the 31st to November the 6th. In research, we published the PRECISE trial that concerns clinically isolated syndrome and multiple sclerosis. This was the topic of a podcast three weeks ago when we published the research online. We have a phase two study about the treatment of central nervous system lymphoma. And look out for two research articles, again previously published online, concerning intermittent malaria treatment. And look out for linked comments with all of these research items. But let's focus on a global disaster directly affecting health, the world food crisis. I'm delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Ronan MacDonald. Ronan, tell us what the problem is here. Well, the problem's so huge, it's quite hard to define, but in other ways it's easy. One billion people don't have enough food to survive, Richard, which is a sixth of the world population. As you know, I'm a passionate Scot, and at the moment in Ethiopia, the government has said that six million people are in urgent need of food. Now, that's more than the population of Scotland, just in the region of one country. If you then build that up to one billion people around the world, some of them dying because they don't have enough food to eat. I mean, what can be more fundamental than that? Yet, what is the world doing? Nothing. Certainly not enough. The world food crisis first came to the media headlines last year because of rising food prices. Then the economic crisis kind of overshadowed. So food prices did begin to come down a bit, but they're still so high compared to historical standards. And of course, it's the poor families that always suffer. So they're having to give up health care in order to buy food. It's a sort of spiralling crisis. And now more people are suffering from undernutrition in the world than ever before. Yet ironically, at the same time, the World Food Programme, which is the UN agency charged with making sure that people have enough food to survive, has received less donor funding than ever I was going to ask you directly about that. The World Food Programme, this UN agency, this has been around, I don't know for how long, but for quite a while. What is the role of the World Food Programme? I'm not quite clear of its mandate. Basically, the World Food Programme is there to try and provide enough food for people to survive. So they have a hunger watch on the world, as it's called. You know, they look out for which countries are running out of food. They then do a call out to donors saying, you know, so many million people are going to starve unless we get food to them. And they've been doing more and more call outs over the past while. And yet it's falling on deaf donor ears. Donors are not responding. So the World Food Programme is, you know, raising the issues, trying to do all the advocacy as well. But also they direct on the ground issues, trying to get food to people who desperately need it. Despite more people needing it than ever before, the World Food Programme has had less donations than ever before. And you say in the editorial, Rona, that terminology is hindering the issue here, isn't it? Do you want to just elaborate on that? Absolutely. For some reason, we call people with undernutrition hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm hungry at least five points during the day, you know, if I've not eaten for a few hours. And so we're belittling this huge health crisis into a sort of whimsical feeling that we can all say from time to time if we've not eaten for a few hours. Let's call it what it is. These people are undernourished. They're not getting the food they eat and they're suffering huge health consequences because of that. And Rona, you mentioned in the editorial, just following on from that, some clearer definitions of what malnourishment or undernourishment means. And you talk about the parallel with the obesity epidemic and the use of the body mass index scale 
reciprocal arrangement here, do you think? I think that would be very helpful because just as hunger is a very vague term and people don't really understand it, I think it would help almost medicalise the issue of food because, of course, we all need food to survive. So, of course, it is a huge health issue. Instead of hungry, we call it undernutrition or undernourished. But at the moment, undernutrition refers more to the number of calories consumed in a day. Calories consumed in a day is not an easy thing for policymakers to understand, especially as it varies with, you know, size and time of year and etc, etc. Yet, Body mass index, BMI, is very defined. You know, everyone knows what BMI is, thanks to the obesity epidemic. BMI, 30 or over, you're obese. You know, 25 to 30, you're overweight. And that doesn't rely on calories consumed or health conditions to do related to it. It just relies to something clinical and definite. So why can't we do the same for undernutrition? Why can't we say that a BMI of 16 to 18.5 could be the international standard for undernutrition and a BMI of less than 16, the definition for severe undernutrition? There's a wonderful line in the editorial. Can you just read that out, which compares the situation of the world food crisis with perhaps a disease like H1N1 or vaccination (laughs) programs. It's quite a powerful line and I'd like you to read it out. Sure. If undernutrition were a disease such as H1N1 and unprocessed food were a drug or vaccine, both would have the full attention of the entire international community. The international community is going to be focused on the world food crisis, is it not, in a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Tell us a little bit more about that and what needs to happen at that meeting. Well, this is the third World Food Summit, really since the crisis began, that's taking place in Rome mid-November. Delegates, country representatives will be there and they have got a site that I think we linked to in the editorial for people who want to look at it in more detail. But I think what's imperative at this summit is that it's not just another talk shop. You know, this is the third summit since the crisis. The thing about, you know, supplying food and the regular supply of food, it involves all these factors that are so controversial and there's not really any global consensus on. Things like trade, things like economics, things like agriculture, things like climate change that so many countries agree on anyway. So as you can imagine, at such talks, trying to reach any consensus is difficult and so any solutions are watered down. So what we're really urging in the editorial is, of course, this is such a long-term issue. We need to sort out these. But hello, one billion people don't have enough food now. Let's do something about this now. They will die if they don't get it. Why can't we treat food the way that we would do any drug? These people are dying because they don't have food. So let's treat them with what they need. Let's give them nutritious food. And finally, Rona, are we totally clear about what an ideal process would be for the rich nations of the world to basically deliver some sort of strategy which can obviously deal with this massive global health problem that affects, as you say, one billion out of six billion people. Is it a case of saying to the G8 countries, you come up with a solution, or to the G20, or how's it got to be done? Well, the G8 and the G20 have promised extra resources, but I think this is part of the problem. It's the usual donor dictatorship, as I call it, or, uh, you know, rich country interference. I think what most experts in nutrition would say is it's better if food can be locally produced and delivered. So really, Food handouts aren't really what we need. It needs to be countries growing their own food so that they become self-reliant. Now, that's going to take a while, and I say it involves all these really contentious issues, like I mentioned before, like trade and agriculture, etc. But in the meantime, Ethiopia is just the latest example. These people need food now. We need to get food to them now. The World Food Programme asks for money. It doesn't ask for food. It asks for money, so then it can source the food that they need. But it's a mixture of, okay, extra resources, the usual panacea of political will, 
and it really is a deathly contributor to the world food crisis now because richer countries not doing anything is making people die. But really we need a better system. As we explained in our undernutrition series last year, we have a really dysfunctional food system. That series outlined what needed to be done, how we need to you know, streamline the process, how we need, we need to make it more equitable, more accountable. No one has done any of that in the year and a half since the series has been published. Why? You know, food, one of the most fundamental things. What we're really saying in The Leader is, why don't we see food as a real medical emergency? Not just hunger that makes it a bit wishy-washy and a bit vague. International community must do something, as must the health sector. Just look at all the attention that each one in one has been getting. Understandably so, and I don't mean it's in competition, but come on, one billion people not having enough to eat. In this day and age, it's just not good enough. Many thanks, Rona. Strong words there and quite rightly so in the editorial. Well, that concludes the podcast for this week's issue of The Lancet. Many thanks for listening. See you next time.